And Jude is warning the, the church, the first century church, against these false teachers. He's saying, be warned, they're there. And as a matter of fact, they are preaching a false gospel. They are preaching and teaching things about Jesus that isn't true. You need to be warned so that you can handle this in the church. And really, if you think about it, all churches that have erred doctrinally, it all starts with a false teacher. And it could be the pastor. It could be a teacher within the church. They come into the fold of the church, and they begin to teach to the Word of God. And as they do that, it begins to deceive those who listen to them and those who are in the hearing of that. That's why it's so important as believers that you bring your Bible to church. Now, I'm not against electronic Bibles. If you have an iPad or a phone, that's okay too. But make sure to follow along when anyone's preaching, me or anyone else, because you need to be making sure that what's being taught and what's being preached is according to the Word of God. Here at Pole Creek, we have five elders, and our elders have full permission to correct me if I begin to preach something that's contradicted the Word of God, and the rest of us have permission to correct them if we find out they're teaching anything contradictory to the Word of God. But also, as the congregation, you have full permission to call any of us out if you feel that we are preaching something that's contradictory to God's Word. My door is always open, uh, email, you can always reach out to me to ask me questions whenever we preach, because we want to make sure that Pole Creek remains a church that is focused on the Bible and on objective truth, not on the truth of the world or societal understanding of truth, but on the Word of God, on what the God, God's Word says is truth. And that's why in our core values, our number one core value is our foundation is the Scripture. The Scriptures are um, completely um, non-negotiable in this church. Um, if there's anything that goes on in this church that is con contradictory to Scripture, by the, the truth of the word, it says that we can rebuke those who teach in error to this doctrine and to this word. So I'm thankful that we have a church that uh, holds to the importance of truth because truth really does matter. So today as we think about Jude and we look continually as we are to heed the warning about these false teachers, the title of my sermon is A Revolution of Destruction. And that's what we're going to read and find out about here in the seventh verse of the book of Jude. So as you found your place, if you will, go ahead and stand to your feet. The seventh verse of the book of Jude, and we're going to read that. And we stand because we honor the word of God as objective and absolute truth. So beginning in verse 7 of the book of Jude, the Bible says this, Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look through these different historical events that Jude mentions, as he relates them back to the judgment against false teachers and against people who go contradictory to the truth, Lord, I pray that you would in, uh, ignite in our hearts, Lord, a desire for the truth. Ignite in our hearts a passion for the truth of your word, that as we engage a world that is all about lies, that is making their own truth, who are rebelling against you as their creator, God, I pray that we would be able to have the truth in our hearts that we could intersect this world, that we wouldn't just let them go about their ways believing a lie, but that you would give us, God, an end to their lives so that we can speak truth into their lives. Lord, we know that you've commanded us to do that in love, that we are not to be hateful, we are not to be mean, but we are certainly to be bold, and we are to be people of the truth, not to back down, that we are to be people who have a spine, not people, Lord, who are afraid that someone's going to get mad at us. Lord, we think about the prophets of old. We think about Jeremiah, Lord, as he preached to people who literally hated him. Uh, they even threw him in a latrine uh, in order to punish him, and yet he did not quit preaching the truth. So, Lord, as we look back to the heroes of the faith like 
the prophet Jeremiah. Lord, help us move forward in this world to continue to tell forth the truth that's found in your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you guys remember, and I'm sure you all do all too well, something that a lot of us would probably like to forget to a certain extent, the George Floyd protests of 2020. And in those protests, there was a renewed mob mentality against the nation's police officers. And we remember that all over the news. There were these calls to defund the police. And the claim was made that the high crime that we were experiencing in many of our metropolitan areas was because there were too many police officers who make too many arrests. And we laugh about that because we think about common sense, don't we? They also claimed that funds could be reallocated from policing to other government agencies that would be better equipped to handle nonviolent calls. We all know that a lot of calls that police answer start out as nonviolent, but they end up violent because of the people that are committing the crimes. A few cities, though, and you know, you think this is absurd that anyone would even consider to defund the police. That's kind of the initial line of protection that we as American citizens enjoy and appreciate. But a few cities have actually gone through with defunding their police in view of some sort of a utopian society that promised that was promised that it would bring. In other words, there were these people who believed in this idea and this revolution of defunding the police, and they said, well, if we defund the police, it's actually going to reduce crime, and it's actually going to make our city safer, and it's going to create this blissful society that everyone will enjoy. Well, Seattle, Seattle, Washington, for instance, has cut their police department budget by 17%. And you think, okay, Ben, well, now we have our first... Um, uh, test. How does this work? Is it actually going to benefit the city of Seattle? Well, the Seattle Times themselves says, and I quote, the agency talking about the Seattle Police Department has been in a tailspin ever since, talking about the budget cuts. More than 400 officers have left while crime has soared. The paper also mentions that many new sex assault crimes are not being investigated due to insufficient resources. So here we have this revolution of defunding the police and it's basically revolution is a revolt against the norms or a revolt against authority or revolt against what's normally practiced in society. So defund the police movement actually does um, constitute a re revolution. And when we see this and we see this playing out, we understand that all the promises that were made in the defund the police revolution did not hold true. All the promises were actually broken. And we ended up with a more corrupt and a more chaotic society in the city of Seattle. I've been talking to, uh, even to a few church members who went that way not too long ago. And they said it is truly just almost like another country up there. It's just a place of disorder, a place of crime, and not a place that anyone would want to raise their families for sure. So as I talked about the definition of a revolution, it is basically a force of a government or a social order. Now you can go back over a hundred years and the local police departments have been a norm and a social order of our society here in the United States for a very long time. Um, we all know you talk about um, the Andy Griffith show and you think about that the local sheriff is the one who really is the leader of the community. He is the one who has the cool head. He is the one who uh, holds people accountable and makes them obey the laws so that the society can run smoothly as a whole. Well, now we have a revolution at hand that says that those men, that those women who serve on our police forces are actually the enemies, that they are actually causing the crime, that they are actually, um, in many situations, racist, or that they play against certain people groups. 
And they have become the enemies. The very ones who were placed to protect society are now being called enemies. And what you have to do is, when you hear about something like this type of a revolution, you have to look at the facts. You have to say, okay, is what the folks saying about uh, defunding the police, is it actually happening the way they said it would happen? Is it actually causing societies to be safer, or is it causing societies to be much more dangerous? And here we see in the case of Seattle that now... 400-some officers have left because they're not being taken care of financially. We also see that sex assault cases, many of which are not being investigated. So I think on many accounts, you can actually say that the defund the police movement has had an opposite reaction than what they said it would have. So as we are even sitting in our, uh, these chairs this morning and as we're here at church this morning, there is a much larger revolution taking place in our society Yes, defund the police is part of that revolution. And from a biblical worldview, we understand that these revolutions that are happening, in other words, these revolts against social norms and these revolts against governing authorities and these re revolts against uh, uh, figures of authority and things like that are actually caused by us getting closer to the end of times. It's actually caused by Satan and his demonic forces ramping up their attacks on the image of God. Now, when I say the image of God, I'm talking about you. I'm talking about every one of you individually who are created in the image of God. And see, what Satan wants to do is, is he wants us to live in an unsafe society. He wants us to live in a society where you are devalued. He wants us to live in a society where your safety doesn't matter. He wants us to live in a society where the unborn are unsafe. He wants us to live in a society where you, as the image bearer of God, are attacked. Because ultimately, Satan wants you to die. But see, remember when we talked about the great angelic rebellion? We talked about the fact that the reason Satan took an interest in Adam and Eve in the garden was because he wanted vengeance on God. And he knew that there was no greater creation in the creative order than you, than humanity, than Adam and Eve. As we look in the mirror, we see... Uh, human features. We understand that we as human beings appreciate beauty. We understand right from wrong. We are conscious of a God. And all these play into the fact that we are completely created separate and different from the animal kingdom. Did you know dogs are not God conscious? Dogs do not have a... Dogs act on instinct. Dogs act on what they're trained to do. But as human beings, you don't have to teach a three-year-old how to say no to their mom or dad. However, you do have to teach them to say yes. You do have to teach children to obey. And it's because they have a moral imprint within their hearts that has unfortunately been cursed by sin and the sin nature. But humanity is created in the image of God to reflect his glory. And when a human being accepts Jesus as their Savior, the Bible teaches us that they become a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And then God controlling us then be a, is able to uh, reflect his glory to a lost and a dying world. When you love someone who's unlovable, when you forgive someone who's unforgivable, when you care for someone who doesn't deserve it, did you know that you are reflecting the glory of God when you do that? You know, the animal kingdom doesn't do that. You know, the animal kingdom, it's protecting self and protecting one's own children or cubs. And a lot of times you'll see even in wolf packs where they will uh, hurt and kill the weakest in the group. Well, Christianity isn't supposed to be like that. Christianity is the opposite of all that. You know, when you think about Darwinianism and you think about natural selection and evolution and all this stuff, it talks about survival of the fittest. Well, Christianity is completely opposite to all that. Because Christianity says, in order to be right, in order to please my God, I sacrifice myself for others. 
See, Darwinian evolution can't explain that. Darwinian evolution can't explain why, as a believer, your heart is broken over someone who doesn't even deserve your love. Why your heart is broken over someone who no one else loves. Or your heart is broken over a sin that you've committed. Hey, listen, that's something outside of this world. Listen, Darwinian evolution is inexplainable. It, it can't be proven. It's a theory. Okay, let's remember that. It is a theory. It is not fact and it is not science. The world cannot be explained without God. You cannot have a right understanding of who you are and your value and what this world is and how we've come about in our purpose in life without a creator God. So here as we think about this revolution, we see that Satan has his hands in it, that Satan is ramping up his activities, that there is a, a larger, uh, more orchestrated attack against the authority of God and his word, God's truth. All right? So that revolution that I'm talking about is a revolution that encompasses defund the police, the LGBTQ plus movement, the different movements to say that uh, all of our institutions in the United States are racist. Those, those movements that tell us that our children, if they happen to have light skin, are inherently racist because they have light skin. It's all of these revolutions that we're seeing creeping into our society that Satan has his hands in, and the ultimate goal of Satan is to destroy our society, to make it less safe for humanity. See, what you don't understand is CRT, critical race theory, teaches it's basically a Marxist ideology. And what Marxism is, is Marxism is what created communism. Marxism is an understanding of society that basically uh, defamilies. It, it, it gets rid of the family unit in a society and causes everyone to operate independently. So that in turn, they become reliant on the government as opposed to their family unit. That's why in Marxism and the LGBTQ plus movement, you see a push to undermine a traditional family. You see a push to undermine a family with one man, one woman who's married and committed and has children. Because they know that as long as that family unit survives and as long as that family unit is perpetuated in our society, that we will continue to lean into our families as that unit of security and as that unit of care, and we will not rely on the government and the powers that be. They know that if they can get us out of that family unit, if they can get people to have many different partners romantically, if they can get men to be attracted to men and women to women and actually engage in those relationships, and they understand that the command to be fruitful and multiply goes away. They understand that now you have taken people out of the family and caused them to be reliant on other institutions within society. And that's really the Marxist revolution. And if you look at it, it's more of a satanic revolution. Um, Karl Marx may have been the one who wrote the manifesto, but Satan is the one who inspired him to write that because ultimately it is an attack on God and it is an attack on the family unit. So here in Jude, verse 7, we see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, though it is an ancient city, the same revolution that is happening today is an attack against God's created order was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah thousands of years ago. So as we look at this uh, historical event mentioned in Scripture, if you guys will, go ahead and let's turn back to the book of Genesis. So as Jude is quoting this historical event in verse 7, he's referring back to the writings of Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, as Moses is telling of this account of these two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what's interesting about Sodom and Gomorrah is that they are mentioned a lot in the Bible. 
you say, okay, you know, this was two cities, really obscure cities in the Old Testament. When we think of cities, we think of L.A. and New York and, you know, uh, Toronto and those big metropolitan areas. Well, listen, Sodom and Gomorrah would have been nothing like that. I mean, this was so early in human history, you know, where you look at a lot of our big cities today that have millions of people living in them, this city may have had thousands of people. So it's on a much smaller scale, and you think about the obscurity of these two cities and the judgment that God placed on them, but then you see how they're mentioned time and time and time again in Scripture, both in the Old and New Testament. And you start to realize God is trying to communicate something to us about these two cities. God is trying to communicate to us something today in the year 2022 that is relevant that we can learn from Sodom and Gomorrah. So beginning in Genesis chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 16. And this is where we talk about the revolution. Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. So just to give you a little backstory, of course, Abraham and Sarah at this place where they're up in age. And Sarah can't have children. And that has bothered Abraham and Sarah so much. Um, they've even gone to the great lengths of Abraham taking a, a different wife, if you remember Hagar, who gave birth to Ishmael, because they were trying so hard to have children, they went outside the will of God to do it. Well, anyways, we have this uh, instance where uh, God and two angels appear to Abraham. They come, and they're walking down the road, and they intersect Abraham, and they begin to have a conversation with him. And in that conversation, if you want to go back and read it later, it's the beginning of chapter 18, they begin to tell Abraham about the great promise, the promise that God had originally given Abraham before, that he would bless the world through the seed of Abraham. In other words, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, who would die and die for the sins of the world, would come through the seed of Abraham, and that was that great promise that Abraham relied upon. But in order for that promise to come true, Abraham would have to have a biological child, which he had not had yet. So God is there reiterating to Abraham, you are going to have a child. Sarah is going to give birth. And if you remember the story, Sarah even laughs when she hears this because she thinks it's so crazy that a woman of her age, probably in her 80s at the time that this was told, could have a child. But anyways, that was what they were reiterating. But while they were there, they began to talk about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah was very important to Abraham because there were some people living there that were important to him. It was Lot and his wife and his daughters. Now, Lot was Abraham's nephew. And Abraham had a, had a long history with Lot because when God called them out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was Abraham's hometown, Lot was one of them that came with Abraham. Uh, Lot was one of those who really um, went on a pilgrimage with Abraham into the land that God had promised them. So Lot was very important to Abraham. So Abraham was very concerned about what would happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. So beginning in verse 16 of Genesis 18, the Bible says this, talking about the two angels and God. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abram was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Talking about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised. Now listen to this. As we go down there, it says, um, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is is extremely serious. 
I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. And here what we're seeing is there is a revolution taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah where the family unit is completely being disrespected. A little bit later, we're going to see a particular instance of the kind of things that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. There was gross homosexuality that was going on in that city. In other words, they said, you know what, God? We don't want to go with the design, the, the male and the female family unit like you created in the Garden of Eden. We don't, we're going to reject, God, your design for family, and we're going to go after strange flesh. We're going to go after other flesh. We're going to burn in our desires and lusts for the same sex. And they did just that. And do you hear God's reaction to what was going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? He said the outcry in verse 20 against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense, and their sin is extremely serious. In other words, it was so immense that it warranted a visit from heaven, from God himself. Now, what this is called is a theophany or a Christophany, which is an Old Testament bodily appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, remember, did not have a beginning in the manger. Yes, that's when he became man and he took on flesh, but Jesus is God, which means he's eternally preexistent. So Jesus was at work in the Old Testament. Jesus here was with these two angels engaging in conversation with Abraham, and Jesus was coming to see for himself if the sin and the outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah had warranted the cries that he was hearing from that city. Now you may say, well, Ben, what kind of cries were coming from that city? Well, I would say it's probably twofold. Number one, it was the sin itself. Now when we think about God, we understand that God is holy. That God is so holy that he cannot conceive of sin. Sin did not originate with God. He can't comprehend it because of his pure, holy righteousness. So when sin is committed within the created order, within the universe, it cries out against God. In other words, it makes a, a, a claim against God. It um, rejects his authority. You know, anytime we sin in our lives, we are rebelling against God, and that sin is rising to him. He understands and knows that it's being committed. And that's why God must judge. That's why God judges sin. Because, listen, if he wasn't holy, hey, listen, sin all you want. No big deal. He's just going to turn a blind eye to it and let it happen. But because he's holy, it's not that he just wants to judge sin, but he must judge sin. Because if he didn't judge sin that took place in the created order, then he would no longer be God. You know, we talk about God is love, God is mercy, God is grace, and all those are infinitely true. But before any of those characteristics, God is holy. Even in Leviticus, it said, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Be holy, God said, for I am holy. You know, that's really the greatest command that we as human beings must understand. God is calling us to holiness today. And the, and the hard part is, and the issue is, is that we can't be holy on our own. That, that's kind of the great uh, problem that we have as human beings. No matter how bad I want to be holy, I can't do it on my own. I must have the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that the Bible says washes me white as snow. And when the blood is applied to me, then it's not that I'm holy, that, I, that I, my own good works have made me holy, but it's that the holiness of Jesus has been imparted to me, that I have received his holiness. And that's why you must be born again. That's why you have to be saved. That's why that if you don't know the Lord Jesus, you can't go to heaven because you can't be in the presence of a holy God without your sins being forgiven. And the only way that your sins can be forgiven is by the sacrifice that Jesus paid on the cross. So here we have God who is investigating this situation. And you may say, well, God infinitely, infinitely uh, understands all things. He's omniscient. Why did God have to go? Why did Jesus have to go and investigate this? Well, I think Jesus wanted to make sure that Abraham knew that he wasn't just going to zap Sodom and Gomorrah without a good reason. He wanted to make sure that Abraham knew, listen, I don't take judgment lightly. I don't just, I'm not just itching to judge people. I'm not just waiting for you to mess up so I can strike you. That's not how our God operates. Our God is a God of compassion. And God wanted to make sure, and he wanted Abraham to know, I'm going to investigate before I take these drastic measures to judge these evil cities. So as we go on down, we see that, those, that Christ and these two angels come to visit Abraham, and they reiterate the promise. Now, when we think about the depravity of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, what depravity means is it's just a debased form of morality. It's almost an absence of morality, or it's a morality that is completely evil. And that's what you saw playing out in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'm sure that just like we talked about with defund the police, there was some great false teacher in Sodom and Gomorrah that started this whole thing. That as they began to say, listen, you don't have to stay. Men, you don't have to just be with women. Women, you don't have to just be with men. Uh, you know what? You can have multiple partners. Hey, you know what? We're going to have a free society here in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to have a society that liberates you from the, from the boundaries of tradition and from the boundaries of, of what God originally instituted. We're going to have a place of true liberty and freedom. And I'm sure that these great promises were made to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah to embrace this revolution against God. One example of a revolution that did not end up well was what's called the Bolshevik Revolution. And many of you have probably heard of that. This revolution took place November the 6th and 7th in 1917. The Bolshevik Revolution brought about the first communist nation that was led by a dictator, and that dictator was Vladimir Lenin. The revolution in Sodom and Gomorrah did not live up to the hype either. You know, you think about communism today, you think about what's going on in China. You see that the Uyghur Muslims are a, um, a, a marginalized group of people that are being uh, basically in concentration camps in modern-day China. The media doesn't like to talk about that. Uh, the administration of the United States doesn't like to talk about that. But indeed, there is a group of people within the Communist Party of China um, that are being marginalized and in concentration camps today. Communism did not work out like it was supposed to. It didn't live up to the hype that was given as the revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, took place. Basically, this revolution unseated the czars and the kings and the queens of ancient Russia, and a new governmental system took over known as communism. We know that communism is essentially a Marxist reality and a Marxist identity, which, again, dehumanizes the individual in order to elevate the whole. Have you ever heard of someone say, well, listen, whatever's for the greatest good, 
You know, that's what we need to do. Hey, when you have a mentality like that, there's always a minority of people who are not considered part of the greater good. And you know what that mentality says and justifies? That you can eliminate those people who stand in the way of the greater good. That's not a Christian ideology. That is not a Christian understanding. See, the Bible teaches that every human being is created in the image of God. Every human being. Whether they're good for society or not. Whether they're intelligent or not. Whether they're attractive or not. Whether they're educated or not. Whether they have light skin or dark skin. It doesn't matter. The Bible teaches that every human being is created in the image of God. And a communist understanding and mentality of whatever is good for the greater good is straight out of the pits of hell. Hey, you know what? There's people that we need to love who are not for the greater good. Hey, listen, there are drug addicts in this Candler community that are not for the greater good. But you know what Jesus has called us to do? Intersect their lives, love them, and share the gospel with them. Show them the grace of the Creator. Show them the love of the Creator. As we're talking about folks who are engaging in homosexual lifestyles, the Bible does not teach that they need to be eliminated so that society can be better. The Bible's teaching that they need to be born again so that they can have a renewed spirit and a new life, so they can understand their true purpose in life and have true fulfillment that only comes with a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever get caught up in that whatever is good for the greater good. That's how communism, that's how North Korea, that's how other dictators in this world justify killing people who oppose their regimes because they're not for the greater good. And we need to reject that ideology with all of our hearts. Genesis 13, 13. Now this is... A past event, uh, you don't have to turn there unless you want to. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. But this is even before we get to this point in, in Scripture. It says this, Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. So even before God's, God came and, and his angels came and they had this conversation with Abraham and they were going to go investigate what was going on in Sodom, even before then, Sodom was known as a place where they sinned immensely against the Lord. Now you may say, well, they weren't necessarily using the Lord's name in vain, Ben. They weren't necessarily putting up billboards that say, we hate God. Listen, they were sinning. And the Bible teaches us that when we sin, we sin against God. You say, well, I can hold that in, Ben. I can keep that to myself. Listen, that sin is only going to affect me. That's a lie of the devil. Your sin never only just affects you. It affects those you love the most, and ultimately, it is a rebellion and a rejection of the authority of God. And here we see an entire city that was engaging in just that. So now that we've seen the revolution, now let's look at the destruction. And then I'm going to finish up with some really good news. The destruction, if you're taking notes, write that down. We're finding that in the second part of Jude 7. If you want to go back there to the book of Jude, the second part of that verse which basically teaches us the destiny and the demise of Sodom and Gomorrah, beginning in the second part of verse 7. The Bible says this, And serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So whatever happened there, whatever sin they were committing, whatever they were engaging in, this perversion and this sexual immorality, because of their refusal to repent to a holy God, the Bible says that they were placed into eternal fire. You say, Ben, that is really harsh. That's really hard to understand. Well, I think it's important for us to remember who our God is and how he judges. And when you use the word fair, 
Make sure you're using the word fair correctly. Ben, it's just not fair that God would completely destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Ben, it's just not fair that God didn't give them another chance. Well, in Genesis 19, we're going to see this interaction between the two angels and Lot and his family. And we're going to see exactly how God handled this situation. So in Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this. So the angels have entered Sodom and Gomorrah. They're searching out. They're looking to see what's going on. And Lot is waiting at the gate. A lot of scholars that I read said that Lot was probably one of the fathers of the city. He was a, very, he was a man of renown within the city, so he had a lot of, of power in the city. And the men who sat at the gates of the cities of the Old Testament many times were the, the men who ran the city. So it says, Then the angel said to Lot in verse 12 of Genesis 19, Do you have anyone else here, a son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. Now, wait just a minute. You mean God gave them a chance to leave? Yeah. We serve a compassionate God. We serve a God who loves. He said, listen, Lot, anybody you know, go get them. You can take them out with you. That's okay. This city is going to be destroyed, and God is going to show grace on you and allow you to get those out that you know. He says this, go to your son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or anyone else that belongs to you. Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. It says, so when Lot spoke to his sons-in-law in verse 14, who were going to marry his daughters, get up, he said, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-law thought he was joking, didn't take the warning serious. You may think, well, why didn't they take the warning serious, Ben? Could have been the example that Lot had been living in front of them. Maybe Lot was engaging in some of the sin too. You know, the Bible teaches that Lot uh, progressively moved closer to Sodom. As he was in the pilgrimage with Abraham, Abraham went this way, Lot went this way at one point. And it says Lot chose the parts of the land that God had given that was closest to Sodom. And it, when you first see Lot, he's camping outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then a little bit later on, you notice he just moved right into the city. And he becomes a part of what's going on. Well, for one reason or another, the sons-in-law did not believe him. And then you go on down, and it says this, verse 15. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up. They've already told him the place is going to be destroyed. And it's kind of like Lot's just dragging his feet. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. Verse 16, what did Lot do? He hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men, talking about the angels, grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, the hands of his two daughters. They brought them out and left them outside of the city. In other words, Lot himself was not willing to pick himself up and walk out of the city. The angels had to drag him out. And we say God is a God who doesn't have compassion. We say God is a God who just judges and, and doesn't care about those who are getting judged. John 5.30 says this, talking about Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Revelation 19, verses 1 through 2 say this, After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. 
We all need to understand that the compassionate God that we serve gives us ample chances. That his grace is seen from Genesis to Revelation. No matter the dispensation of God's word that you find people living in, God is showing grace and mercy to humanity. Remember when Abraham even asked God, he said, God, if there's 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare the city? You know what God said? Yes. Lord, let me speak again. If there's 45 righteous in the city, would you spare it? God said, yes. What about 40? Yes. What about 30? Yes. What about 20? Yes. What about 10? Yes. And as Lot was engaging with God, he said, if you can find 10 righteous people in this city, I'll spare it. Couldn't do it. There wasn't even 10 righteous found in the city. Those who were considered righteous, Lot and his family, were the only ones who were spared. The only ones who did not deserve that judgment. Then, even though Lot hesitated, God jerked him out of there. Today, you know what? I want you to know something. God is still a holy God. God is still a God who judges sin. But you know what the good news is? If you know Jesus, that judgment's not for you. Did you know that if you know Jesus, you're not even going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment? Because the great white throne judgment is only for those who don't know Christ, and they will be judged on their sin. The Bible teaches us that if you are in Christ, you're a new creation, the old is past, the new is here, and that your sin is gone. That when God looks at you because the blood of Jesus has been applied to you, he doesn't even see your sin anymore. When you stand before God one day, long after this life is over, he's not going to judge your sin on that day if you know Jesus. He's not even going to bring it up. You say, Ben, I've done the worst things imaginable. It doesn't matter. If you know Jesus, he's not even going to mention them. You know why? Because they're under the blood, the blood of Jesus. And you know what? When he sees you and that blood's been applied to your soul, he sees the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that is? That's mercy. That's compassionate. God, that is grace, unimaginable, that someone like me can stand before God with no sin on my account, completely paid, debt-free. I can walk down the streets of glory because Jesus paid it all. Today, this morning, you know what? We live in a world who needs the Lord Jesus. You live among people who are engaging in sin that is crying out against God. And I can assure you of this, there's going to come a day when the judgment will come. And you know what we need to be thinking now? That neighbor of mine, that friend of mine, that coworker of mine, if the judgment were to fall today, where would they end up? And if you're not sure, God has called you, specifically you, not your pastor, not your preacher, not someone else in your family. God has called you to engage them, to intersect their life with the gospel so that they can know that there is a Savior who loves them and died for them and can forgive them.